So there is a lot going on on the, uh, it's not even clear whether it's fair to call it the left, but the, the true extremist fringe in this country, um, and it's not all trans people, of course, but the extremist trans fringe um, is a lot more threatening than most people understand. Andy No has been covering, he's been covering Antifa uh, for years now. He's the author of Unmasked, Inside Antifa's Radical Plan to Destroy Democracy. He's a senior editor post-millennial. He joins us tonight. Andy, thanks so much for coming on. Um, so again, you don't want to get too broad brush here, but there is an extremist movement, obviously. It's very evident online in the aftermath of this mass murder. Are you surprised to see it? No. So in my reporting on Antifa for years now, one um, observation that I noticed was that disproportionately the number of riot arrestees uh, are gender diverse. And by that, I mean they don't identify with their biological sex. Um, on some nights, it was as high as 20%. And that is magnitudes higher than what the data we have on people in the, in the wider American population who are trans-identifying. So, you know, I looked into, into this a bit further. There is some peer-reviewed research out of Canada. You can find it on the Library of Medicine um, that shows um, that there's evidence that young transgender people are particularly vulnerable to violent radicalization. And in my reporting on left-wing extremism, in months, for months now, I've documented and tracked this surge in violent rhetoric by self-identified trans militant activists, particularly on Twitter, in response to various states restricting or banning the medical transitioning of minors. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the horrific murder of children and staff at the Christian school yesterday does come just days ahead of a so-called um, Trans Day of Vengeance that's being organized in the U.S. Capitol. And unfortunately, um, myself and other people who have reported on this and posted this flyer, which, by, by the way, that group is still online, if you posted the flyer, regardless of the context, um, you're locked out of your account. So currently, I cannot access my Twitter. Can, can I ask you just a quick macro question? So one of the reasons that so many well-meeting middle-aged moms in this country have bought into support of the trans community is on the basis of the promise that it's liberation and this is kids when they finally express their true inner identity will be happier and better adjusted. But the incidence of violence and mental illness seems to be extraordinary. So it doesn't seem like people are being liberated. It seems like people are being tormented and driven to, driven to the brink of insanity. That Just watching, that seems clear. It's the exact opposite of liberation. We have mountains of evidence that people who suffer from gender dysphoria also suffer from very high rates of um, mental health comorbidities. Um, when you have this reality on top of people being fed cross-sex hormones and yeah. are also being in an environment where they are encouraged to have a violent hatred of wider society. And you can see, see this in the reaction before, during, and after this, uh, this killing. Andy No, thank you for your incisive and, and very informed uh, analysis of this. Appreciate it. Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens, stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight. Tonight.
Are Democrats radicalizing left-wing terrorists? Mr. Reagan. By now, you've all heard about the tragic shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. The shooter was a transgender, well, what the left would call a transgender man and what conservatives would call a mentally ill woman. Her name was Audrey Hale. But that was really weird. I mean, I, I don't remember ever hearing about a female mass shooter. And so immediately I started thinking about, like, what is the motivation here? What, why the heck would this person do this? And I actually wrote my buddy Kurt about this uh, shooting. I wrote, um, a 28-year-old woman killed three kids. Why kids? This is bizarre. And then I wrote, maybe it's a trans dude. That would make way more sense. When I wrote that, I was thinking maybe it was a male that was pretending to be a female. Turns out it was a female pretending to be male. But even though I got that part wrong, the fact that I thought it was a trans person was right. And here's the thing. I actually believe that we can expect more of this because trans activists, trans extremism in America is incredibly dangerous. I, I've noted on my show before multiple times that the most vitriolic, vicious, and destructive people that I have encountered on Twitter are trans activists. I've even been attacked personally online. People have gone into my various accounts and try to do whatever they can to try to disrupt my online presence or whatever, who are trans activists. I made a video a while back detailing death threats that I'd gotten from transgender folks. And they're just nasty, right? They're just vicious. And this is all due to a culture that has been cultivated by the left and by the LGBTQ community. And the Democrats have been facilitating this for years. They want to be on the side of the trans activists. They want to be on the side of transgender Americans. They want to be on the side of transgenderism generally. And until this shooting, I've always considered the Democrat messaging on this subject to be motivated primarily by votes, by power, by money, as everything on the left is, really. And the possibility that some people in the transgender movement might be dangerously radicalized. Well, I just figured that that was a predictable and not unacceptable side effect of dividing the country and securing an entirely new block of reliable Democrat voters. But now I think that it's a lot more sinister than this. I, I actually think that a lot of Democrats know that they're radicalizing extremists. And I actually think that for some of them, this is the goal. All right. So the shooter at this school, this this unbelievable tragedy that we saw play out the other day, the shooter was a transgender, what the left would call a transgender man, what conservatives would call a mentally ill woman. But this is not just a mentally ill woman. I am going to guess this was a woman that was taking testosterone. Now, I don't know that for sure, but that is the primary drug that women take who want to transition into becoming men or want to pretend that they're men and, you know, want to have some of the physical characteristics of men. They will take testosterone. And one of the known side effects of supplementing your normal testosterone with added artificial levels of testosterone is something called roid rage. And everybody knows about this, right? This is something that is a problem with the bodybuilding community. You take testosterone in order to build big muscles and you get roid rage. This is a huge problem. This is a problem with athletes, uh, football players, stuff like that. And it's also a problem with trans men or women who are trying to transition to, to try to pretend that they're men. And this is not something that's talked about all that much. I even looked it up. I actually looked up a study that was specifically about this to see if people understood, like people in the medical community 
understood that this was in fact a side effect of testosterone treatment trying to create men out of women. And I found a study, it was called, Does Testosterone Treatment Increase Anger Expression in a Population of Transgender Men? And this the study's conclusion was, this study demonstrates that during seven months of continuous gender-affirming hormonal treatment, anger expression and anger arousal control increased in trans men. And so, yeah, so this is something that we know happens, right? If you give women testosterone, they can have roid rage. They can have this problem, these anger issues. Um, And you're dealing with people here who are mentally ill, right? You're giving a mentally ill person testosterone, which is going to increase their anger. Like, what, what are you doing? It's almost like you're creating super soldier terrorists. There's no way that I can just pretend that I think that the medical community is completely innocent here. All right, you're complicit. If you know that you're dealing with mentally ill people and you're giving them drugs that are going to make them more angry and aggressive and depressed and all this stuff, what are you thinking? This is medical malpractice. So yeah, so I'm pissed at the medical community for not coming out against transgenderism. Absolutely, totally, strongly against transgenderism. But the Democrat Party, They are the most complicit. They are the worst because they have actually facilitated and exacerbated the mental illness of transgender Americans for years now, for years. They've decided this is something, this is going to be an issue that we're going to back. And why? Why do they do this? Because they want to divide the country. They want to say, you guys are victims and these are the enemy. You've got to rely on us to protect you from all the evil anti-trans people out there. So you're a victim. These people are evil primarily Republicans, Christians, white people, and we're going to protect you from them. So vote Democrat, vote Democrat, vote Democrat, right? That's their, that's what they do. We've known for a very long time that mental illness in this country is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. You see it, you see, you see it all over. And the reason is because instead of treating mental illness, we are told to affirm mental illness. You have to affirm the stated gender of a mentally ill person. And if you don't, you're a bigot. But it's worse than being a bigot because we're told that we're causing a trans genocide. And this is something that I just I covered literally in the last video that I posted. Democrats promote this idea of the trans genocide. And this casts conservative Christians as the villains because we refuse to affirm the delusion of transgenderism. We are the prison guards of a trans holocaust. And so, look, naturally, this nonsense is going to radicalize gullible Americans who become convinced that this genocide is real. Look, Democrats only have one message that gets them voters. Republicans are evil. Now, it used to be this is how we save the environment. This is how we protect vulnerable people. This is how we help victims. And Democrats still claim that these are their goals. But instead of helping black Americans who they claim are the victims of systemic racism, they instead say, this is how we take down the evil white males. It's no longer about protection or help. It's about destruction. Instead of protecting the environment, they now say, this is how we destroy the fossil fuel industry. And instead of doing things that might actually protect LGBTQ plus people in America, whom they claim are vulnerable. No, no. They say that anybody who used the wrong gender pronoun, they're the enemy. And people who don't use the right gender pronoun, they are committing trans genocide. And I actually explained this in my last video, trans genocide, but I will recap the concept of trans genocide here. The twisted logic works like this. Transgender Americans commit self-deletion at a very high rate. And I have to say self-deletion because I've heard that YouTube will suppress my video if I use the word that rhymes with brewicide, a.k.a. death by coffee. And as I said in my last video, I may actually be at risk of that. 
Anyway, because transgender folks are at such a high risk of self-deletion, we've got to try to protect them. That's the that's what the Democrats think, right? Never mind the fact that there's lots of professions with very high suicide rate. And, you know, if you don't support minors, uh, does that mean that we are causing the genocide of people in the mining industry? But I digress. Democrats say that, you know, because transgender folks are such high risk of self-deletion, we've got to try to protect them. And according to the trans activists, the only way to do that is to facilitate their delusion. So anybody who does not participate in affirming the fantasies of these mentally ill people, well, according to the activists, we are knowingly and intentionally encouraging them to self-delete. If I refer to a chick who is pretending to be a dude, if I refer to her as she, well, according to the activists, I'm intentionally encouraging that chick to self-delete. This is absurd. Now, I referenced in my last video a study by the Heritage Foundation, a guy named Jay Green conducted this study, called Puberty Blockers, Cross-Sex Hormones, and Youth Brewicide. You know, rhymes with brewicide. And this study indicates that the activists are just dead wrong. Affirmation may not be the best way to ameliorate the increased likelihood of self-deletion amongst transgender individuals. And conservatives have, since transgenderism became an issue, we have believed that rejecting the delusional gender fantasies of transgender folks is actually a much better direction. And I can't express just how strongly I personally believe this. Now, I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist, anything like that. But it's just common sense. If somebody entertains a serious delusion about themselves, they're not functioning in reality. And if you don't function in reality, there's a real danger of sinking deeper and deeper into your fantasy. And eventually you could become incapable of dealing with the real world. A child who thinks, maybe I can fly. They are snapped back into reality when they jump off their roof and they break their leg. We would all love to be able to bend and break steel with our bare hands like a superhero. But... Play around with a vice or a crowbar or a saw in your dad's garage as a kid, and you quickly realize that the steel wins. Learning to function within the real parameters of the world in which we live, that is the most fundamental education that you can have as a child. Somehow, we are neglecting to teach the most basic lessons to many children in the 21st century. And by supporting things like drag queen story hour, individual gender pronouns, and the infinite myriad of genders that the LGBTQ plus activists pretend exist, Democrats are actually encouraging this. And as I said at the beginning of the video, until this point, I've always considered that Democrat messaging on this issue is entirely motivated by votes and power and money, as everything that the Democrats do is. But now I think that a lot of Democrats are intentionally radicalizing extreme left-wing trans activists, and they're hoping that these people become domestic terrorists. Now, why do I think that? I mean, it sounds pretty crazy, but why do I think that? You know, there, there's this expression you know what a Democrat is doing by listening to what they're accusing Republicans of. And what have the Democrats been accusing us all of for the past few years? Extremism, radicalization. They call us extreme MAGA Republicans. MAGA Republicans have made their choice. They embrace anger. They thrive on chaos. They live not in the light of truth, but in the shadow of lies. And as I said before, you know exactly what Democrats are doing just by listening to what they're accusing us of. And look, I know that that is not the most convincing evidence in the world, but I do think that that pattern is noteworthy. Here's a much more compelling argument. You don't really have a lot of domestic terrorism coming from the right. You don't have a lot of violence coming from the right. You don't have a lot of rioting coming from the right. On the left, you've got Antifa, 
and you've got BLM. These are two organizations. People say, oh, Antifa is not an organization. It's just an idea. Antifa is an idea, not an organization. Oh, you got it. Not militia. Antifa is very much an organization. And what does this leftist organization do? They burn down buildings. They attack people. They attack the police. They tear down statues. They ruin cities. What does BLM do? Exactly the same thing. They burn down buildings. They tear down statues. They attack people in the streets. They loot stores, stealing everything inside. Now, why do they do that? Why do they do that? It seems to have slowed up since Joe Biden has taken office. There doesn't seem to be as many Antifa riots. There doesn't seem to be as many BLM riots. Curious that. And it leads me to ask the question, what is the intention and what is the motivation of those who support Antifa and BLM? and who encourage these organizations to go out and riot. Well, there are multiple motivations, but I think that one of the more primary motivations is Marxism. Marxism has always maintained that the best way to bring about Marxism in a new country is to tear down the existing system, whatever that might be. In our case, it is a constitutional republic, but many people call this a democracy. I don't have a problem with that. I know a lot of conservatives go insane when they hear democracy. It's called common language, folks. It's called colloquialism. Just it's okay. Just because somebody says democracy, it doesn't mean they're the devil. But anyway, the the idea of Marxism, and this comes from the old Soviet organization, the Comintern, right? They used to have this thing called Comintern, Communist International, Communism International, whatever. And the concept was, how do we spread communism around the world? And the idea was that you've got to create class warfare within every country. You've got to reduce the quality of life in that country. And then the lower classes, which are the majority population, will take out the elites. They'll take out the upper class, the higher classes, and then the whole country will be basically destroyed and then they will there will be a demand from socialism. Socialism will rise up in the ashes of the the obliterated former system. And not everybody agrees with this, but this may be the motivation of the billionaire Porge Poros. Uh, I can't say his name on the channel or I think that they will probably suppress this this video, but uh, yeah, the billionaire Porge Poros, you can figure out who that is, uh, has pumped millions and millions of dollars into the campaigns of local prosecutors. Now, why would he do that? Well, he wants to bring in prosecutors who will not prosecute certain crimes, who will release certain prisoners from jail. Uh, So a lot of these murders that are happening in America, a lot of the increase in crime in America is occurring because you got these prosecutors that have come in and they've just not prosecuted. They've just released prisoners. They've allowed a lot of these dangerous criminals out into society. And this is the goal of Porge Poros. Now, why does he want to do that? Again, there is this theory that if you can create enough pain, enough suffering in a society, you can reduce the quality of life enough, then people will demand socialism. Uh, but look, there, there, there may be a different motivation, right? There may be that a lot of people on the left, they may not want socialism full on. They may just want Democrats to be in power in America, because as we all know, as anybody who watches the show knows, Democrats that are in power today are entirely corrupt. We might as well be in a socialist country if Democrats are in control in Washington, D.C. They have a racket, right? They can use tax dollars. They can use their power of creating laws or dismissing laws in order to game the system in order to get rich or to funnel money to organizations that are friendly to them that'll help them get reelected. They care about power and they care about money. That's all Democrats care about, Democrat politicians. And so why would you have, if you wanted the Democrats to be in control, why would you have BLM and Antifa tearing up the cities? Well, it's sort of like a protection racket. 
right? In the old days, you would have like the Italian mafia. They might come into your business and they might say, ah, you know, it would be a shame if this business got burned to the ground. It's like, you know, if you give us like uh, $5,000 a month, we could maybe stop anybody who might want to burn down your building, you know? But the idea is, obviously, if you don't give them 5000 bucks, they're going to burn down your building. They're going to burn down your business. And that kind of feels like what's going on with Antifa and BLM. Look, guys, uh, if you don't vote Democrat, BLM and Antifa might just burn down your building. They might just terrorize your city. But when we're talking about getting votes, this is no longer a protection racket. This becomes terrorism. You have to vote the way we want or your city is going to be terrorized. Your city is going to be burned to the ground. I actually talk about this in a recent video that I did for my Mr. Pagan channel. This is actually the first time I brought this idea up. Do you really want us to live in a world in which Trump is elected? In which all of the hardworking deep state swamp dwellers are arrested or kicked out of D.C. and there's no corrupt political machine funneling money to the various deep state operatives and establishment politicians and their Wall Street cronies and the military industrial complex, a world in which Democrat politicians are not taking bribes and kickbacks? Oh, sure, you might say you want that, but that's also the same world in which Antifa and BLM are burning down the businesses of straight white men. Remember? Remember when Trump was president? Remember all the riots and the destruction? That can happen again, you ungrateful pricks. I mean, I, I don't know why that stuff happens when Trump's in office. It's certainly not some kind of protection racket. All I'm saying is that if you vote for Biden in 2024, that won't happen. So yeah, this may just be a state-run protection racket by Democrats, a.k.a. domestic terrorism. There's another motivation that I considered, and that is just that some people are pure evil. That's it. They're just evil. Uh, and if you don't believe in evil, let me tell you a story about evil. Okay. I met this gay guy once. This is in New York City. You know, eventually I figured out he was gay, and I had the opportunity to ask this guy, why are you gay? And he had a bizarre answer. His answer was that he was just turned on by what he described as, this is his word, things that were naughty. <laughs> And the way he described it, as I continued to ask him questions about this, essentially the idea was this. Anything that was forbidden by society, anything that was deemed bad or evil or wrong, he liked that stuff. He was drawn to that stuff. And so he looked at temptation to do something wrong, not as something to be avoided or as a challenge to his morality or to being a good person. He looked at it as something to be indulged, right? Now, some people might be able, like some psychiatrists might be able to say, oh, I can, I can explain why that is in, you know, in, in psychiatry or in psychology or whatever. But I think for most people, we just look at that and then we say, that's just pure evil. That's just evil. And there's another category of people that I've met who just want to hurt others. That's it, right? Uh, I had a buddy, this is a guy I knew in college, and he always wore t-shirts that were very anti-Christian, like intentionally anti-Christian. He was a strong atheist, and he hated Christianity, he hated Christians. And these were very provocative shirts, and I would give him crap for them sometimes in class, you know. And uh, what I found out is that he was actually very funny and very intelligent. And he also noticed that I was very funny and I was very intelligent. And before we knew it, we were good friends, bizarrely. And this guy was obviously a strong Democrat, and I was a strong Republican, and he knew that I was a strong conservative Christian, um, and I knew that he was a strong Democrat atheist, and that didn't stop us from being friends. On my end, part of it was obviously I thought maybe I could fix this guy, maybe I could help him, maybe I could reach him somehow. Um, but after a while, I, I eventually asked him, I was like, why do you vote Democrat? You're obviously a very intelligent guy. 
Um, and by then I had figured out that he knew that most politicians were evil, you know, were just bad and were going to destroy the country. I said, why, why do you vote Democrat when you know they're bad for the country? And his answer was fascinating. And a lot of people, by the way, I've, I've written about this stuff on Twitter. And a lot of people will say, you know, oh, this never happened. You know, of all the things that never happened, this never happened the most. You know, that was popular to say for a while. People would always put that on my on, on these kind of posts. But I, I promise you, these are real people that I have met. These are real encounters. And I'm telling the, you these stories as honestly as I can remember to tell them. So so this guy responds to me, he says, uh, the reason that I vote Democrat is because I I want to destroy the country. That's what he said. Now, you got to understand, this guy was a very ugly guy. Like, physically, he was very ugly. He was actually difficult to look at. He was so just unfortunate looking, as a girl I knew once used to say. Um, he felt that he had been dealt a bad hand in life. That God or nature or whatever it was that made him ugly basically screwed him over. And he was never going to be able to enjoy life in the same way that attractive people did. So anything that attractive people liked or what he perceived was designed for more attractive people like mainstream society, he just rebelled against. He just hated it. Christianity, he hated. He just considered these things to be for the pretty people and not for him. And so his idea was, if I can't be happy, no one should be. I should drag people down to live in the misery that is my life. He had no interest in elevating society. He wanted to destroy society. He wanted to make people as miserable as he was. It was kind of a revenge on society because he was born. He felt, you know, like a kind of victim. And this is how many victims feel. They have this resentment for everybody else and they want to tear everyone else down because they feel that they have been treated unfairly. And so what happens when the Democrats keep telling everyone, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim? They're creating more and more people that resent society, resent people that they feel are have a better life than they do. And this resentment causes people to lash out and want vengeance, want revenge, even though they're not really victims and even though they can actually have a good life. They don't care about that. They want to tear you down. So look, there are evil people in this world. That's just a real thing. The left would like you to believe that there are no evil people, that everybody, except for white people and men, uh, everybody else is just purely good and we just have to accept them for who they are. And what they mean by that is, of course, anybody who votes Democrat. Everybody who votes Democrat is perfectly good. <laughs> but anyway, so the point I'm trying to make here is that there are many intentions, many motivations on the left to want to create violence in America. And so I really do believe that Democrats either know that they are incidentally creating domestic terrorists or they are intentionally creating domestic terrorists. And look, we cannot negotiate with terrorists. Democrats must be defeated at the polls, they must be defeated in the media, and they must be defeated in the culture. Do not back down. Do not appease them. Do not entertain their delusions. Conservatives must fight for the traditional values that created this country. Because if we lose this culture war, evil wins. And we will see more and more horrors like the tragic shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. Well, that's it for me. Let me know what you guys think in the comments below. And remember, it's not that our liberal friends are ignorant. It's just that they're trying to destroy the country. <laughs> Good night. What is fascism? Fascism is private ownership, private enterprise, but total government control and regulation. Well, isn't this the liberal philosophy? The conservative so-called is the one that says less government. Get off my back. Get out of my pocket. And 
let me have more control of my own destiny. This is the Dinesh D'Souza Podcast. Christians are under fire, quite literally, and not just in Nigeria or around the world, but right here in the United States. And the incident in Nashville, the mass shooting, has got to be understood for what it is, an anti-Christian act, um, an act of terrorism against a Christian school, and by the way, an accompanying Christian church, uh, by a transgender shooter who appears to have been motivated by transgender ideology. Now, how do we know this? Well, we know it in part because there is a manifesto and the manifesto is being withheld. It's being concealed. And in fact, I saw an article that LGBTQ activists are demanding that the manifesto not be released. In other words, that the motivation not be made clear. This allows um, outlets like CNN to go, officials are still searching for the motivation. They actually know the motivation. They're just not telling us what it is. Now, the only honest headline about this episode is from the New York Post. I'm reading the headline, Transgender Killer Targets Christian School. Boom. Says it right there. Identifies the victim, identifies the victimizer. This doesn't identify the ideology, but that is um, presumed behind it. And contrasts this with the lying headline in Reuters, which I'm going to read you now. Former Christian school student kills three children, three staff in Nashville shooting. So the shooter is not identified as trans, but is identified as a former Christian school student. The assumption being that this is some intramural Christian dispute. Uh, the former student is upset with the school. There's probably some beef with the school's policies. And then I look at all these headlines, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, Chicago Tribune, pretty typical, six dead in shooting at Nashville school. They exclude the word transgender. They exclude the word Christian. Now, let's turn to this manifesto that's being withheld. I think what's really telling about it is if, if white supremacy is to blame for hate crimes committed in its name, Shouldn't transgenderism be blamed for hate crimes committed in its name? Is this why the LGBTQ activists are trying to suppress the public release of the manifesto of the Nash Nashville school trans mass murderer? I turn on the channel to NBC and guess what I see? I basically see a segment on how this is going to have really troubling reverberations of fear, not in the Christian community, but in the trans community. In other words, the perpetrators have now somehow suddenly become the victims. Let me read you the NBC headline. This is from NBC's own tweet. Uh, Fear pervades Tennessee's trans community amid focus on Nashville shooters' gender identity. So NBC has decided that the perpetrators are the real victims. Transgender domestic terrorists raise the prospect that the transgender community as a whole will suffer stigma. Let's all feel really sorry for transgenders after this horrible incident that they now have to live through. Not one word of mention, not one word of sympathy for the Christians. And in fact, in fact, here's a headline. This is from the British paper Daily Mail. Exclusive Nashville mass shooter was rejected by her Christian parents. And kind of dissecting what they're getting at here, what they seem to be getting at, it's the Christian's own fault. 
The Christian parents rejected this um, uh, young woman who's transitioning to becoming a man. Uh, Audrey is becoming Aiden. And it was because of that that she or he was driven uh, to commit the acts that were that were committed. So the Christians, in other words, go from being the victims to now being in a sense, the cause or even the perpetrator. And amazingly, uh, trans activists have planned, they had this plan before the incident, but they haven't canceled it. It's on April 1, it's called Trans Day of Vengeance. Think about that. Think about the title of that. Not a trans day of protest uh, against some Tennessee law, but trans day of vengeance. And I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, you've got these trans activists who not only show, have t-shirts and slogans showing themselves with, with weapons, but you also have videos that have, I've shared and others have shared on TikTok where you've got trans activists with, with loaded uh, AR um, weapons and they're, they're clicking them, basically essentially creating a public public threat or a public taunt. Like if you reject us, uh, we don't just reject you. If you reject us, we are out to kill you. Guys, I'm really happy to welcome to the podcast a new guest, Dr. Thomas D. Williams. He's the author of an excellent book that I just read. It's called The Coming Christian Persecution. He's also the Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart News. Uh, he's taught at the Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He teaches theology at St. John's University. He's written a bunch of books. Uh, he's also got so many other credentials. He speaks multiple languages. He's a wine sommelier. Um, I don't even know where to start with your, with your bio here, Dr. Williams, but welcome and thanks for joining me. Um, your book is unbelievably, well, it's both timeless and it's timely. Um, I've just been talking on the podcast about this latest, uh, grotesque incident, mass shooting at a Nashville, a Christian school. And it seems very interesting because in the book you talk about how there is a kind of widespread public denial of the anti-Christian bigotry behind these kinds of actions. And we're seeing it in the media coverage. Um, the media coverage is, I think I just saw a, um, a headline in Reuters, former student shoots up Christian school. That's it. Uh, no reference to the motive, no reference to the transgender perpetrator or domestic terrorist. So clearly some of the stuff you're talking about in the book, and you cover history, you cover the rest of the world, but it's all too relevant to what's happening right now in the West and specifically in the United States. Well, unfortunately, you're exactly right, Dinesh. This is exactly this is what we're seeing on a on a daily or weekly basis, uh, and it's happening all over the place. It is only really deniable to those who are who are choosing to be blind to it because it is it is growing at an accelerated pace. Um, Tucker Carlson last night on Fox News, he the title for his segment on this was the trans movement is targeting Christians. And he made a very, you know, a, a very cogent case for the fact that this is something that we're seeing. There have been a number of these incidents. This is not the first. And it's also part of the rhetoric that they're using. The Christians really are looked upon as the enemies uh, because of Christian insistence on on two sexes, a God made male and female, some basic things that, you know, up until a few years ago would have been looked upon as is completely unremarkable. These were just basically what all right thinking people understood. 
But now they're suddenly suspicious and bigoted and hateful and all the other terms that they like to to use to tar Christians with. In the book, you talk about, uh, I, I found it very interesting that when you talk about ancient persecution, and of course, if you said the phrase Christian persecution, many people today would think, oh yeah, that's what happened in the catacombs. That's what happened in the early years of Christianity. Uh, and, and, and you have a couple of chapters where you go into all that, but you make the point that even then there was an effort to transpose the victim and the victimizer. In other words, you have this giant Roman Empire. It's persecuting this small band of Christians, but they act as if the Christians are the danger. The Christians are the menace. The Christians are a threat to Rome instead of, instead of, of course, Rome being a threat to the Christian community. Well, that's, a, that's an excellent point. I mean, the fact is that no one, I mean, everyone needs to justify, even psychologically, and certainly for public opinion, you need to justify persecution of another group of people, especially when, as you say, it's kind of a bullying action of a very large group against a very small group, uh, which we had in the case of the Roman Empire, or a very weak and vulnerable group. And I think that, you know, that that is part of human nature to say, well, they deserved it. They brought it on themselves. They are the ones who are intolerant. They are the ones who are who are calling for this because of their, you know, atrocious actions. You know, they called they called Christians the, in the early centuries uh, cannibals. They accused them of, of orgies, this idea of agape, this love fest, which we would understand today as, as Christian Sunday worship, was thought to be something very sordid and lewd. Uh, there were all sorts of things, and Nero, as we know, even blamed them for the great fire in Rome. I mean, there were there were all sorts of efforts made to make the Christians look like the bad guys and say, hey, we're doing everybody a favor by stamping them out. You quote the historian Tacitus, and you quote him because Tacitus, of course, is a is a Roman. He's not a Christian. He does he's not particularly sympathetic to Christians, and yet he's talking about quote a mockery of every sort was added to their debts. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burned to serve as a nightly illumination when daylight had expired. So here you've got external corroboration of not only the magnitude but the viciousness of persecution and I found it interesting that even the so-called enlightened Roman emperors whom we don't think of as persecutors you mentioned for example Trajan and an interesting mm -hmm. exchange with Pliny the Younger where basically Trajan says look don't don't go like seeking out these Christians but if you but if you if they come across you and they refuse to recant um, and what's interesting is they don't just have to recant any bad actions that they've done they have to recant their Christian beliefs themselves. Uh, and if they don't do that, they're subject to criminal penalties. Yeah, what was seen as dangerous, and that you bring up a really excellent point here, it wasn't so much what they were doing in the sense that the Christians weren't out doing illegal things. They weren't out doing criminal activities or, or they were simply, they had a higher allegiance than that of the state. And, you know, the Roman Empire was, in a way, a quintessential form of the totalitarian state that we've seen, you know, examples of so much in our own day, uh, really where the, the highest allegiance had to be the state. You could do a lot of things within that, uh, under that tent or under that blanket, but you could not deny Caesar the worship that Caesar wanted. You had to, you had to somehow integrate your beliefs into the larger belief system of the Roman Empire. And the Christians obviously were simply unwilling and unable to do that. 
Let's take a pause. We've been talking about ancient persecution. I want to fast forward in the next segment to the present and talk about persecution now around the world and then also in the West and in the United States. We'll be right back. I'm back with Dr. Thomas Williams. He's author of the book, The Coming Christian Persecution. By the way, you could follow him on Twitter at TD Williams Rome. Uh, his website, thomasdwilliams.com. Um, we were talking, uh, Dr. Williams, about ancient persecution. Let's come to persecution uh, today, which a lot of people, as you say, don't seem to recognize or to acknowledge, maybe not even some people in the churches. And yet you say it's going on all over the world. I'm quoting you. It has now reached unprecedented levels. You talk about possibly as many as 340 million Christians facing not just persecution, but in the words of a recent report, quote, high levels of persecution. So let's let's start outside the West and identify some of the main trouble spots and as well as some of the main perpetrators of anti-Christian persecution. Who are they? Well, this is taking place all around the world, but some of the hot spots are in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, I would say, because you can name a few also in South America and other places, but the, the, the main core of these, these lands are these. So you have situations uh, of atheistic communism. So you have North Korea where it's illegal to be Christian. It's illegal to possess a Bible. It's illegal to speak to your neighbor about Jesus. It's illegal to pray in any way that is discernibly public. Uh, and you can be thrown in jail. You can even be killed for that. And and there are so many cases. It just it happens all the time. Uh, you have the case of China, where at least ostensibly there's some degree of religious freedom, but only kind of like in the case of the Roman Empire, where you do not in any way contradict the basic fundamental teachings of the Marxist socialism that is the undergirding of that society. And you can only do it in such a way as completely controlled by the government. Just a quick example, just two weeks ago, they introduced an app. And now in one of the provinces in China, and I know this is going to spread, you cannot go to church without having first registered on the app and reserved your place for that day. So the government now monitors not only what church you belong to, but when you go, how often you go. And they already have surveillance within the churches themselves to monitor what is being said to make sure that it doesn't, again, in any way offend the state. If you go to other places, there, there are many, many of the countries where it's most dangerous to be a Christian today are actually uh, Muslim dominated countries. And that's something that is, it's unfortunate to say that, but it's simply the truth where, where Muslim radicalism exists, it often, uh, the, the Christians are the ones who bear the brunt of it. We have places like Nigeria, which Open Doors, which is a Christian persecution uh, watchdog group says, is the place that's most dangerous to be a Christian today. You're most likely to be killed. And there are constant deaths, constant killing, machetes, burnings, uh, shootings. It's, it's, uh, it's ongoing. And it's also directly targeting Christians, uh, who are in a slight minority there. But the both groups like Boko Haram and the Fulani raiders in the middle of the country, they're very, very aggressive in their desire to, to really make life difficult and even exterminate Christians who are living in the area. Uh, we have many others in the Middle East that we've been following these last few years. It was very prominent in the case of, of the, the Islamic State in Syria, in Iraq. We have the case of Iran. Uh, really, the list is very, very long. There are a number of other countries in in uh, in um, 
uh, in Africa that I could mention. We could also mention India now, where Hindu nationalism has become more and more aggressive, especially in provinces where there are larger populations of Christians. Christian Christianity is a very small minority in India, but where it exists, it is it is beaten down quite often. Now, this seems to some degree a little odd to me in the sense that, by and large, historically, Hindus have been a relatively tolerant group of people through, uh, through time and, and by temperament. Uh, and supposedly Islam is a religion that acknowledges Jesus to be a prophet within the Islamic tradition. Uh, is this a theological conflict? Is it a political conflict? Is it that Christianity has gained strength in Africa? Where, I mean, at one point there were hardly any Christians in Africa. Now you got African countries that are 30 and 40 and 50% Christian. Is it that the Muslims now feel that their power base and the society is threatened? What do you think is the driving force behind the kind of hostilities that you're describing? Another great question. I, I think it really varies from place to place. I think you're absolutely right in the case of India. I think that there's a very po strong political force right now, and there's an effort to kind of conflate Hinduism with Indianism, if you will, that to be a true Indian, you need to be Hindu. And this is something pushed, obviously, by the party in power and by Prime Minister Narendra Modi. So I think this is something that has a very strong political push behind it, where religion is being co-opted in a way. Uh, by that party. I think in the case of some of these uh, Muslim dominated countries, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes it's political, but uh, I remember very clearly the, the Islamic State in 2016 got very, very upset when Pope Francis tried to say that uh, that the Muslim persecution of Christians was not a religiously motivated uh action at all. He was saying, no, this is economical, this is social, this is a question of clash of culture. This has nothing to do with religion. And they published an entire issue of the propaganda magazine, Dabiq, to respond to Pope Francis and say, you don't know us at all. We do what we do because this is the will of Allah and we are following the true Islam. We are following what we're actually supposed to be doing. Jihad is part of the commandment of the way we are to live. So I think that you've got, you know, both realities kind of coexisting at the same time. Let's take a pause. And when we come back, I'd like to talk about religious persecution in the West and specifically in the United States. I'm back with Dr. Thomas Williams, author of The Coming Christian Persecution, an excellent book. He's also the Rome Bureau Chief for Breitbart News, his website, thomasdwilliams.com. Um, Dr. Williams, uh, let's talk about uh, persecution here and now and in the United States and in the West. Um, I'm thinking specifically, uh, if we begin with the Nashville uh, mass shooting, which is on a lot of people's minds, the shooter wrote a manifesto. And it seems probable, when we haven't seen this manifesto, that it's full of anti-Christian rhetoric. It lays out the kind of trans motivations. In other words, we don't have a trans shooter who just happens to be uh, a criminal, but we have someone who is motivated by trans ideology and seems to be targeting specifically Christian children at a Christian school that is appended to a Christian church. And yet the police 
police and the FBI are not releasing the manifesto. I find this in itself interesting because I say to myself, well, listen, if it was a white supremacist who said, I'm doing this in the name of white supremacist ideology, and here's my 12 pages laying out why I'm doing it, there would be a deafening scream across the media, release the manifesto, let us be aware of how serious the problem is. So I'd like you to just comment on where we are now with this particular uh, controversy where we can't uh, figure out clearly the full motivation of the shooter, not because it doesn't exist, but because it's not being shown to us. Yeah, I, the, the paradox is really abound in this particular case. The fact, as you say, that, I mean, the first thing you, you would insist on, any reasonable journalist would say, well, show us. We, we got to know. I mean, obviously, the reason is all there. Why would you not want the public to have access to this? And it's very strange. It, it does, unfortunately, bespeak, uh, you know, a lot about this particular administration. Uh, President Joe Biden has been a huge advocate of of transgenderism, even among children. Uh, and so this is something that kind of part and parcel with the position that his administration has taken. But still, there should be more outrage, even on behalf of just honest secular media who are looking at this and, and say, well, you know, you, we have to know, even if we don't like what we read, we have to be able to report on this. People have a right to know. And we do know, of course, we do know that there's going to be anti-Christian stuff there. We, Of course, we do know this was a targeted attack. This was not just, oh, we happened upon this one. The church, the, 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 the doors of the school were open, but we just went in. No, it was all written up. There were plans. There were diagrams made. There was an entire uh, program about this attack. And, and it was meant to do damage and to kill children and adults. Um, and, and obviously the person's very disturbed and obviously it's a very sad and tragic case. But again, I think a deeper problem of this is that within the trans movement itself and the trans lobby, there's so much anti-Christian rhetoric that when people get in a very heated state, that is the logical target of that anger uh, and that frustration and the violence that they feel. Um, I mean, what, the dog, there are a number of dogs that have embarked in this particular um, uh, episode. I mean, no press conference by Mayorkas, for example. Think of what would have happened had it been a trans victim, for example, or a mass shooting directed at the trans. Uh, they'd right. be all over it. But the other thing is a relative silence, as far as I can see, at least to date, from the churches. I don't see a lot of pastors coming forward and saying, hey, we stand in solidarity uh, with the Covenant Christian School. We demand the release of this manifesto. We are the ones who are the targets of these kinds of assaults. It's almost as if, you know, when you talk about the silence in the media, that's true. You talk about digital media and censorship. But talk for a moment about the silence inside the churches. That seems to me almost the most chilling silence of all. Well, we've seen this coming for years, Dinesh, and it's a very, very sad thing. Our Christian churches are really becoming a less and less courageous. We saw that during the pandemic. We've seen that during a lot of these controversies when they're, you know, people get angry with the Catholic Church. The first reaction in these Christian churches is to kind of back down and say, oh, we didn't mean it. We're sorry. We didn't. And especially when it comes to the LGBT community or movement or lobby or whatever we want to call it, uh, that agenda, the, the Christian churches just don't want to say anything. They don't want to and, and again, I think rightfully they don't want to appear as hateful, which I don't think they are. And I don't know, you know, Christians who are hateful toward these groups, but they're worried that any sort of a condemnation of these ideologies as something that is very dangerous for society will look like that. 
and they don't want that kind of negative attention on themselves. And because of that, I think they lose their voice. They lose their courage to speak. Now, the churches may be looking at it as some of them that, hey, we don't want to seem like we're hateful. We don't want to seem like we're intolerant. One of the points that Tucker made in his monologue is that the ideology of the trans community is antithetical to Christianity. That's a whole other thing. It's not a matter of being tolerant. Is that these guys are standing at the sort of opposite end of the spectrum. They see you as the enemy. So if you don't recognize that, you're putting yourself in a really strange position. Well, absolutely. And I think this is a time for Christians to double down and say, hey, we love everybody. We love even people who have crazy ideas and who do really bad things. We we love people. But we affirm that reality is reality. People talk about follow the science. Boys are boys. Girls are girls. This is, is in complete accord with what Christians and, and the Judeo-Christianity, it's a Judeo-Christian uh, tradition is always taught. This is something that up until recently was considered common sense. It was just the reality as it presents itself. This idea that we can somehow manipulate reality and make it according to whatever we imagine, and we can just ignore the facts on the ground, you know, this is new and it's very dangerous. The fact that so many people caved to it and are willing to say, oh, that's what, you know, I, I don't understand that. It's, it's like the emperor's new clothes all over again. I mean, I just talked about this on the podcast and to pick up an analogy I used, if you have a guy who says, I was born in the wrong body, right? I'm actually Napoleon Bonaparte. In my mind, I'm Napoleon. I'm really Napoleon. First of all, I don't think people would hate that person. They would basically go, there's obviously something wrong with that person. They're obviously a victim of some sort of a delusion. It doesn't mean that they need to be ostracized, but it's, it's a whole other thing to demand that all of society start using the name Napoleon to refer to this guy. That would be carrying craziness, you know, beyond its normal ambit. Uh, and I think what you're saying is that Christians need to step up and speak out for the reality that is part of our natural order, the created order. And um, and I think this is a really powerful and, and, and now a very timely book, The Coming Christian Persecution. It's by Thomas D. Williams, uh, published by uh, Crisis Publications, Manchester, New Hampshire. Dr. Williams, thank you very much for joining me. Appreciate it. Dinesh, I appreciate it too. Thank you.